All right, let's do this. Peanut, if you're staying in the room, no talking. Hello, and welcome to the Photo Work Podcast, the talky and touchy-feely version, particularly with this episode, of my book, (laughs) Photo Work, 40... (laughs) 40 Photographers on Process and Practice. I'm Sasha Wolf, uh, coming to you today once again from the mothership on the Upper West Side in New York City. And I'm joined, as always, uh, by my friend and producer, and perhaps the only man right now I'm desperate to have in my home. (laughs) (laughs) I'm coming over. (laughs) Michael Chovendal. Hello, Michael. Hello there. When are we going to record in the same place? Well, soon. Hopefully soon. Hopefully yeah. soon. Yeah, yeah. Yep. All right. Working towards something. Working mm-hmm. towards something. Um, how are you? I'm doing all right. You know, it's uh, getting a little nicer out. and It is. Uh, I'll be able to take my classes outside. I'm actually kind of excited about that. Oh, all right. Very nice. Very nice. Yeah. <laughs> so two things, housekeeping. One, this intro is going to be a little short because the episode runs long and actually includes, when you get to the end, keep listening, people, because there's a little bonus tacked on at the end that's yeah. I think, pretty pretty funny. And two, I have to apologize for um, how I sound. I, <laughs> um, <laughs> As I was saying to you before we started recording as much as I love trees they don't love me in return Mm -hmm. just have insane allergies so um yeah this is this is how I'm going to sound for the next six months so anyway um I actually I actually got tested once and I'm I'm allergic to trees mold dust grass and weeds so nature (laughs) yeah nature exactly yeah me too so what did you think of this episode with the photographer who I represent my good friend uh Peter Kaofis this really was uh, an episode amongst friends, and you can feel it in the conversation that the two of you have. I, you know, I came to Peter's work through friends of mine who spoke so highly of him, and you know, I, I just loved getting to know his work, but I didn't really get to know too much about Peter because um, I never really heard him speak, and this was just a treat for me. The, the two of you actually spend a bit of time talking about the idea of uh, where you can find professional satisfaction that doesn't come straight from your work. Uh, you know, in, in the idea of, I think Peter refers to it as the rat race, like sort of jumping into the rat race of of promoting and selling your work. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, he finds that satisfaction through other outlets and it helps him, you know, maintain a kind of integrity in his work. And that is that is that was just a, a conversation that I, you know, I could listen to again and again because I, I found that really uh, resonates with... Uh, you know, the idea of how do you keep working? Uh, and I always love those conversations. Yeah. No, he's really honest, which I'm very thankful for. And um, I, I think he really just genuinely shares. And he's very articulate, articulate about 
what he thinks about photography and his process and whatnot. Anyway, I think people are going to, I hope everyone really enjoys it. Absolutely. There's, there's, there's a lot of great moments and a lot of great yep. Uh, yep. yeah storytelling as well. Yeah. All right. So without further ado, and as we said, listen all the way to the very end for a little bonus um, section. And until next time, Michael, uh, please take it away. My pleasure. And here's your conversation with Peter Kaiafis. Peter Kaiafis, welcome to the Photo Work Podcast, which I have to say is <laughs> just very strange. I'm greeting you that way as if I haven't already spoken to you five times today. But anyway, welcome. It's it's great to have roped you into <clears throat> being on the show. Well, it was an easy rope. That's true. It was pretty easy. Um, so for listeners, just full disclosure that although I've had a lot of friends on the on the podcast, um, you are like my brother, one of my people I'm closest to in the world. And not only that, but you are the culprit who got me into this line of work. Yes. Uh, maybe we'll get maybe we'll get to that that story. I, fig- <laughs> I figured that true. would co- come up and I've organized my defense <laughs> accordingly. <laughs> good. Good man. Good man. So you and I go back almost 20 years and have were friends before. Yeah, before I even got into this, this uh, business. But anyway, okay, enough about me. So we start every show with a little, just a, a little biographical information from the guests so that I don't have to read their bios, which is such a snooze. So uh, yeah, if you could just you know, tell us about yourself. Sure. I'll try to make it succinct. And that way, if there's anything that we get into later on, we can elaborate then. But um, okay. so I, I live in New York City. I'm not far away from you. I'm in Harlem. And um, I've been here for 32 years now. I lived uh, before that in Concord, Massachusetts, the town I grew up in outside of Boston, and moved to New York uh, to study at NYU and to photograph on the streets here, um, and pretty quickly met an amazing man, my mentor during the last years of his life, Leslie Katz, who was the founder of the Aikens Press Foundation, uh, which is a New York-based publisher, not-for-profit publisher that publishes books on American art and a lot of photography, including some pretty important books by Lee Friedlander and Walker Evans um, that I had admired before I knew Leslie. And so meeting him and having him ask me to work with him was an early honor, having happened in my, I guess, probably around the time I turned 20. So I still, to this day, 29 years later or 30 years later, whatever it is, run the Aikens Press Foundation. That's my so-called day job. I teach at Pratt. I've been doing that for 20 years as well, just one class a semester. Hope to have a chance to talk about that because teaching is an important part of my process. And yeah, my, my work uh, is consists largely of traveling from New York, but also there's quite a bit of work that I've done here in the city. Um, I have the great privilege of having a dark room in my house here in Harlem, which has made the last year during the lockdown um, pretty productive, which maybe we'll also talk about. But my uh, the bottom line really is that um, my work is a blend, uh, not my work, just my photography, but my work in general is a blend of, of publishing books and editing books, teaching uh, making photographs, uh, working with you towards exhibitions, publishing work through uh, the Purple Martin Press, which is my own private company that I use to publish my work, 
and then uh, volunteering at a few different arts organizations, Yaddo, the fantastic uh, century-old artist residency program up in Saratoga Springs, where I'm the current co-chair of the board and have been involved on the board for a little over 20 years, um, and the New York Public Library for Performing Arts, where I sit as an advisor on the Jerome Robbins Dance Division. So I have lots of different hats, and I'd like to think that by this stage, they all blend into uh, a rich life that is largely, uh, or at least from my point of view, I hope largely in the service of my work as a photographer. And you come from a photo family, so... You know, I know that you started making pictures, and this may sound like we're joking around, but we're not. Um, you started making pictures when you were really little, uh, much younger than um, most people. I mean, often people pick up a camera when they're young, but you were sort of with camera um, more consistently because your father is a printer and your mom owns a gallery. Y- yes, that's true. I come from something of a photo mafia family. My, my father yeah. founded the, uh, the undergraduate program at Mass Art in 1970 or 71. I was born in 71. So I remember holding on to his ponytail and going down the pot smoke strewn hallways of, of Mass Art during my third, fourth, fifth or sixth years and actually being in the darkroom with him at school and of course being in the darkroom with him at home. But one of the byproducts of that is that he gave me a camera, I think sometime around four or five years old, and he would use my film to um, teach his beginning photography students. They would develop my film, I mean, not all of them, obviously, some of them, and then they would make contact sheets and they would make prints. And then, believe it or not, I did have an exhibition when I was uh, five or six (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> at at, uh, at Mass Art at the gallery there. And, and they, they did me the courtesy of hanging the pictures three and a half feet off the ground, which was about eye level for me um, at that time. <laughs> and I actually, I, my father gave me a box of those prints about, I don't know, about 10 years ago. So I actually somewhere in my archives here have the exhibition prints from my first show, which would have been 1975 or 76 when I was four or five, five or six years old. So yes, that's true. But I've, I do come from a family that's been deeply engaged in, in the arts and, and especially photography. So um, I guess I was born into it. Well, you know, I was about to describe sort of your style of photography, but why don't I let you do that? And then I want to connect your history with the way you, you photograph. But why don't I, I let you describe the type of pictures you make? Mm. You know, I've always found it a little bit easier to describe the process involved in taking the pictures that I take. Yeah, that's fine. um, Because I think ultimately they sort of become the same thing. You know, I I use a camera to explore the world that I'm interested in. And and the camera helps broaden that interest, which is to say the more that I use the camera to look at the the world, the more interested I become in its specificity. And I sort of follow the camera or... The use the camera to find a path. And I guess the resulting pictures then have to do with being records of, not in a documentary sense, but in a kind of personal, existential, emotional, intuitive sense, they become records of that experience. So I work in black and white film, largely because that's how I started and I got good at it and efficient with it. 
but also because I especially like not being caught up in knowing what are the results of the pictures that I'm making while I'm making them, i.e. digital cameras with a, you know, with a, with a, a back that shows me the picture that I just made. And so mm-hmm. it's sort of a, there's a thrill associated with knowing while I'm out photographing, whether it's for a day or for a month or many weeks, that I'm accumulating these latent images that are responses to situations that somehow moved me or excited me and that I can sort it out, sort out those responses when I get back to my, my home base, my darkroom, etc. So I guess the, the kinds of pictures that I make are accumulations, accumulations of experience. I, I still subscribe very much to the great John Sarkowski statement that the act of photographing is a lot like the act of pointing. And of course, the result of pointing with a camera is a picture. And I'd like to think that photographers, those that I admire and I'd hope to subscribe to this myself, are the, the sum of those things at which they've pointed. And hopefully I'm around long enough to keep pointing to accumulate those things. So the, the pictures that I make, I guess the style of my photography is that, uh, you know, it's, a, it's an homage to what I see in front of the camera. And you're shooting 35 millimeter. I, I think that's important because of the freedom that that size camera gives you. And so it gives people a clearer idea of the way you're moving with the camera. You're not on a tripod. That's right. And, uh, you know, I, I, ha- I have done a couple of projects with the, a two and a quarter square camera, which is similarly portable mm-hmm. and a little bit of work with a four by five inch camera, but not anything that's uh, gone into the world, so to speak. Um, but yes, I, and I, I think being nimble and, and not having to think too much about equipment. I only use a 35 millimeter lens. I have a couple of Leicas, but I, you basically have one as a backup. So I use the same camera and the same lens and the same film and the same developer and the same paper for three plus decades. If I haven't figured it out yet, <laughs> I don't know what, when I will or if I ever will. But it does, it does narrow the equation of things that can go wrong and decisions that have to be made. And so it makes it all the closer, I think, to actually really genuinely being able to point so that it becomes almost instantaneous. And you don't, as a rule, of course, there are exceptions, but as a rule, when you're shooting with your 35, and by the way, we haven't made this explicitly clear, but I do represent, you're the first photographer I represented, (laughs) um, you, as a rule, are you know working in that run and gun style, so you're not stopping and 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 talking with people um, when you're photographing people, which is a really big part of your practice. You are just moving and 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 making pictures. When you know, was there a time? Do you remember a time where you thought, yeah, this is the way I'm going to shoot. I'm not going to because they are very different. Yeah, I mean, look, I actually think that that that's changed slightly, or or like you say, there's exceptions to to the rules. I mean, like my first interest, my first love was street photography, and you know, the Gary Winogrand photograph of Hollywood and Vine was my favorite picture, and I thought, my God, if if I could ever do anything like this, I mean, it just has everything. It has light. It has the narrative. It has this sense that all this was going to be happening, whether or not the camera was there. 
And that to me is one of the more important modus operandi or one of the more important con- considerations for my, for my modus operandi is that I'd like to think I want to, as much as possible, be photographing something that would be happening if the camera wasn't there. Um, so, I, you know, so I think that the idea of not talking to people, as you put it, or not interacting with people comes from that. On the other hand, I would say more and more as I go back to the same places, as the places I go to uh, events at those places unfold in a, in a slower pace and with more deliberation, with obvious instantaneous kinds of things happening all the time, I find myself immersed in the culture. And so inevitably, I am talking a lot to people. It might not be the people that I'm photographing at that minute. But there, right. there is yep. a kind of, rather than this sort of passing through that was my, my sort of earliest ambition was just to be a fly on the wall. You'll hear some, some photographers talk about wishing that could be invisible. And, and indeed, I did have that early on. But now I definitely feel my style is more about being able to make the picture as unobtrusively as possible, but not being quite as disconnected from the situation the way I was before, where I would just be passing through quickly, making impressions of it and, and never to return. So I think the, the going back to places and the being more deeply immersed in the projects and the culture has caused me to have a lot more interaction with people than I initially did, although it's not... And I think this is what you really meant. It's not about setting up a tripod and making a collaborative portrait of somebody. Yeah. What do you attribute the being more involved to? I mean, I know you could easily answer this by just saying, well, I'm going back to the same places and and we should talk about what those places are and what some of those projects are. And so you can sort of take it away here and, and get into that. But I am curious you know, because obviously that is a decision. You could easily, I mean, maybe it's a decision born out of simply, I like being in this place, but, you know, maybe it's a decision based on wanting to to have the um, familiarity and some relationships influence your work and the type of pictures you're making. So, Well, I, I think patience and humility are part of what informed that slight change. That mm-hmm. and, and the obvious, for me anyway, which is the reward. So there, 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 I can remember times when I was first traveling in the United States, which I've done for my photography once every year for about a month for 30 some years. Um, that's I sort of look forward to and build up to these summer trips and plot a route, a very general route, and then basically don't have any plans. And we can talk about that a little bit later. But I, I think what happened is I there would, there would be times, a day or two, where I would think to myself, I just, nothing interesting has happened. And, you know, I think when you're 19 or 20 or 21 or whatever the case may be, it's easy to blame that on the situation. <laughs> I think at a certain point, I just realized that a lot was happening and I just hadn't figured out a way to tune myself to it and see it. And so I think the first thing I did was consciously slow down. And if I was in a place, if I was in some small town in Mississippi or Nebraska or wherever it was, and I thought, God, this town really is kind of boring. Nothing is happening here. There's no, I don't know, there's no people on the streets. There's no rodeo. There's no celebration for me to plan myself around. I think a couple of times I would intentionally stay there for another day and I would just convince myself that the reason nothing is happening is because I hadn't figured out a way to sensitize myself to seeing it. 
And I think that that led to an appreciation for realizing that my, my relationship to my subject wasn't just a passive one. It wasn't just me happening upon something and making a picture. It was more about me being in a situation and allowing things to unfold and then reacting to them so that the pictures are really about my experience with the subject rather than, you know, what I had thought perhaps uh, of, you know, 20 years, 25 years ago, which is that, you know, I was a fly on the wall. And so it, it really is much more about my presence and seeing things through the lens of my camera. While I would still like the individual people who am I photographing to not react to the camera, and I'd like to make a picture before they have a chance to react, and then if we have a conversation about it afterwards, that's great. Just the general work process, I think, has evolved to a place with where there's just more patience and more of an understanding that the world is a fascinating place, and if I'm not seeing something fascinating in it, it's my own uh, my own deficiency at that moment. That seems also like you know a philosophical change because the idea that you're a fly on the wall, or even the idea that somehow you could just be making straight documents, it seems to me like the more you know you have to sort of integrate knowing and patience as as you as you said it seems like inevitably there's then going to be more of you in the pictures does does that make sense it does and i mean of course there's another thing to remember which is that it's just the sheer math associated with shooting 100 rolls of film and making 4 or 500 prints a year for 30 years and you know, those are the prints that I've made. There's still the negatives, which I go back through occasionally. I mean, there are literally tens of thousands of photographs that have now become a part of my visual vocabulary and my experience. And, you know, not only can I not ignore those, I actually celebrate them and learn from them. And the the process is, uh, I mean, whenever I use this analogy, it ends up sounding a little bit flawed, but maybe I can pull it off this time. It's a, it's a little bit like a closed circle of learning and experience, not a closed circle in the sense that it exists in a vacuum, because of course the opposite is true. But if I go into the world and use the camera to explore it and then come back and look at the results that I made intuitively, the results that are on film that I then develop and then I then think about and edit and work with you to towards an exhibition or a book, if that's the case, or just discuss them. I then go back out into the world with all of that cumulative information. And if I do that over and over and over again, each time that I go into the world, I am recognizing patterns both in the world and in my own work so that I'm the wiser with my approach. And to, to, to not pay attention to that would be to me, such a profound waste of that experience, that cumulative experience. So I think that it's just the process has demanded a sense of patience, humility, and awareness of what that cumulative body of work is telling me about where I go to photograph and what I choose to look at. So, I I mean, I just think I I have had to change. Now, look, is the change apparent in the work? I don't know. I mean, I, I... Maybe somebody would say yes. Maybe somebody would say no. Maybe somebody would say it it doesn't matter. I mean, I'm still making 35 millimeter black and white photographs of largely of people and the places that people inhabit. But it's certainly the feeling and the process has changed for me and continues to do so as I as I keep making these photographs. So you alluded to the 
travel and the, the, your, your actual process of sort of tackling territory. Uh, you, you've shot, you've done large projects in a number of places outside of the United States, but the United States has really been your main focus. And you do have a rather wonderful sort of way of just tackling all the land um, and all the possibilities. So maybe you tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. I like. I think there's there's the early version, the middle version, and the and the current version of, of, mm-hmm. of how I tackle that. And as I've alluded to in uh, the conversation so far, the 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 early version was the sort of gung ho. You know, I want to get on the road and uh, make photographs of you know the country that is the country that I come from, and the culture that has informed my education and the places where the books that I love to read have been written and the photographs that I think are admirable have been made. And and that's what sent me south. I mean, I was excited by the A.G. Evans collaboration that is the messy, brilliant, let us now praise famous men. And of course, you know, it doesn't make sense to say anything about let us now praise famous men without talking about what came after in the form of the Americans, etc. But I really felt like I wanted to, to see my own version and live my own version of it. And, you know, there is no small amount of thrill and romance associated with getting in a vehicle and not having a destination and being able to to engage with whatever happens on the road. And, I mean, it is very seductive to some people. I think some people find it highly unpleasant and inconvenient. But for me, having a month with no plans other than to be on the road is about as exciting and inspiring um, now as it was when I made my first trip in 1990. But I would say that that was my first trip. And so I didn't, well, I, I knew something of what to expect, but none of it was based on my own experience. It was all based on my impressions of other people's experiences. And each year that I gained my own experience, I, I think I got better at it. I had a little bit more of a sense of what to anticipate and where, and uh, how to increase the likelihood that something interesting would happen in front of my camera and that I'd be there sensitive enough to take advantage of it. That, that MO is, has become a necessary part of the process of my life, living in New York City, where I have all these other responsibilities that I've already mentioned. It has become a sort of antidote to them and a, and a complement to them. And Again, there's this this sense. I think it happens. There must be some mathematical equation for it. It's sort of like that. You know, there's there's a a science article that I read a number of years ago about why when you're young, summer feels long, and it's literally because we have very few points of reference, right? If you're if you're 18, maybe you have 10 or 12 summers that you're conscious of, and so the the, the sense of time is is expanded. And by the time you're 40 or 50, um, summer goes pretty quickly along with everything else. And so I, I think that there is this not quite sudden, but definitely exponentially increasing awareness for me of the number of images that I've made, of the things that I've seen, and of the accumulation of that and how it affects me and how, how it affects the way I see things. So like a road trip last summer, I mean, maybe that's not the best point of reference because it was during the COVID lockdown. But let's say the previous summer, that was, you know, my 30th road trip or 29th road trip or something. And by which I mean 
focused road trip to photograph in the United States. I've obviously had many, many other times on the road in the United States and elsewhere, but with a particular focus on a particular kind of process. And I think that it's kind of amazing to, to me, it's amazing to actually be able to look through the cumulative, cumulative results and allow them to inform how I proceed with the next trip or the next road trip. Um, and just in, from a, strictly from a, a work process, you know, I, I go on the road, I shoot a bunch of film, I come home, I take a month to develop it. I let it sit for a few weeks or months, usually months, so that I'm a little bit less, um, uh, what's the right way of putting this? Uh, I'm a little bit less beholden to or or corrupted by the actual experience itself and a little bit mm -hmm. better at editing pictures and recognizing them for what they are, which is photographs, right? Nobody else has had my experience and my experience is now in the past by the time that I'm looking at the pictures. So whatever clarity I can bring to that is advantageous. So I, I wait several months and then over the winter, December, January, February, I'm in the darkroom printing. And then I sort it out and blend it or add it or subtract it or create an edit from uh, an ongoing project during the other month. So even though I'm photographing while I'm in New York City and I make these other trips, it's that, it's that, that month-long road trip in the summer that is the core of my year's work and has become the core of my life's work so far. And you drive thousands of miles, just to be clear, during... Yeah, I mean, I tell people how, how far, because I keep track. I have these maps, and I keep a, da a daily log. Not not uh, not an obsessive compulsive log, not a log that is meant to be a part of the, the work itself, but a log out of convenience uh, and curiosity. Convenience because, uh, you know, I draw on my maps where I have gone and where I might want to return to, and indeed, they've become increasingly useful as, the, as they've become richer with the... They're records of my trips. But yeah, I, you know, I think on average in a month on one of these trips, I did actually figure it out at some point. It was some, somewhere around 5,500 miles. And you know, when I tell that to people, they say, oh, well, how do you see anything if you drive that much? And the answer is and that's an average of about 200, 250 miles a day. If you're up at 5 a.m. with the sun and you're parking yourself at a motel um, at 7 p.m. so you can get the last of the light in whatever town you're in. It's not that hard to drive pretty slow 250 miles if you're driving all day long and moving through these little towns. So I think probably I've driven well over 100,000 miles on the back roads of the United States in 30 years solely with the idea of making photographs as a result. I think also it helps when you're staying at particularly uh, crummy motels that you don't want to hang out for too long. <laughs> yes, there is that. I consider myself the connoisseur of the cheap, crummy motel. The $39 a night. $39 a night. That's a bit rich <laughs> for my blood. No, I, I remember <laughs> I stayed in a motel once in Alabama that literally had a gunshot uh, in the wall. There was like a bullet hole in the wall. And it was it was $17 a night. And then I stayed, I stayed in a flop house in New Orleans that was um, $12 a night. So, um, but now I, now I don't even stay in motels. I just sleep in my truck, which I've outfitted for that, which we can talk about later on, maybe. Well, we love the truck. I'm a big yes. fan of that truck. We do love the truck. So something interesting has sort of transpired uh, over the past couple of years, which is that really for the first time, I mean, you, you did this really beautiful project in Coney Island, primarily, I mean, you shot 
you know, parts of Coney Island, some of the iconic structures there. But your main body of work is was pictures made that you made in the water of people in the water in Coney Island. And that's a, a really fully realized, beautiful body of work. You've also shot on the streets of New York to some extent. But you've, you've really, as we've talked about, spent most of your life photographing in the South and out West and in the Plains states. But about a couple of years ago, you started to photograph the East Coast. And I'm curious, you know, what, what, what that's felt like, because obviously you were very curious about this sort of unfamiliar world, the mm. world of the, the South and the rest of the United States, but coming from being an East Coast boy, sort of kept away from home. So what's it been like to explore your your roots? Yeah, I mean, that's, well, look, I should start off by saying I'm still figuring it out. <laughs> but yeah, um, it's but, very new. But there's, but there's a lot that I, that I think I have, that I can say that I've, that I've learned. And well, most of it you have to, I think, first of all, it's not just the East Coast, right? We think of the East Coast, but actually the majority of my time is not spent necessarily along the coast. And there is a very rich and fascinating and very photographable um, aspect of that history in the fishing communities and the relationship that, um, that New England has to, uh, to the water, to the Atlantic Ocean. But a lot of my time has actually been spent inland, so to speak. Yeah, New Hampshire. New Hampshire, yeah. Vermont. And even the, like I've spent a lot of time in Maine, but mu much of it not on the coast. And there are various mm -hmm. reasons for that. I mean, obviously, I've spent a fair amount of time on the coast, too. But it's just so inundated in the summer when I'm typically traveling with tourists and with people yeah. who want to be on the coast to experience the water and the, and the cool air, et cetera. That I, I really, it's, it's, I find it almost impenetrable because it's not, it's, I'm more interested in what the character of a place is, not what it becomes when a transient yeah. group of people, tourists, et cetera, come there. So I have found that the sort of inland areas of New England, including, you know, Connecticut and, and uh, parts of Western Massachusetts, but, uh, but certainly Vermont, New Hampshire and Maine. And look, I, I grew up in Concord, Massachusetts. I mean, I learned to swim in Walden Pond, for God's sake. You know, I had, I had tran <laughs> transcendentalism, you know, growing out of my ears. And fortunately, I, I appreciate it. And it's, it's, a, it's a philosophy and a, and a way of living that I, that I admire greatly and, and throw. I think we bonded very early over, over my Emerson. obsession with, yeah, with Ralph Waldo Emerson. Yep. Oh, I, I may, maybe we should, I should get you to, uh, <laughs> to recite the first two paragraphs of self-reliance. <laughs> you, 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 you had me at the first three sentences when we first <laughs> met, but everybody should know that Sasha can That's another recite podcast. word for word, probably more than the first two paragraphs of, of self-reliance. <laughs> I do, I do think that, you know, I, I've always felt like you sort of ran away from home as an artist, and now you're sort of coming home as an artist. And I, I don't know, I think it's really interesting. I mean, how does it feel? Yeah, well, I think that's right. I mean, I, maybe it's too dramatic, but the running away thing. Because, I like drama. <laughs> I mean, there were certainly things to run away from. I, I thought Boston was a real bummer when I was 18 years old. And I thought, you know, I'm just ready to get out of Boston. And um, but look, I, my, my, my 
love my parents. I you know, had good friends. My education in the public school system was amazing. I, you know, I, I just needed to get the hell out, like I think any 18-year-old does, which is one of the reasons that I always thought, well, how do you raise a kid in New York? Because where do they run away to? Um, so when I, when I first came to New York, it was definitely with the idea of not you know, looking back at New England or certainly not Massachusetts or Concord. And and yeah, I think it's you're quite right. What what happened with that, uh, the sort of big loop that I've taken over 30 years around the states, you know, through the South and, um, you know, the South obviously has so many different layers in time, but, you know, basically spent 10, 12 years photographing the South and then a pretty significant amount of time photographing the Southwest and uh, and California. I lived in San Francisco for a little while. Did an independent study with Hank Wessel, which was fantastic at the Art Institute, and and then gradually made my way back around to the Plain States and the central part of the United States. And yeah, I guess it sort of occurred to me at some point that I was going to need to pay attention to where I come from. And actually, to be totally honest with you, that occurred to me probably about eight or nine years ago. And Every summer or every spring when I was finishing up teaching, I have a sort of calendar, yearly calendar where I, you know, I allow myself to begin doing the research that I need for my summer trip. And, and I kept saying to myself, oh, you know, I really, I should go photograph New England. I should, I should spend some time in New England. And then some part of me would think, oh yeah, but Montana, I really got to get back to Montana. And I don't know, there's more to do. And at a certain point, it just felt like the time was right to, not that I was abandoning anything, not that I would never return to Montana and Wyoming and Nebraska and the Dakotas, just as I would never say I'd never return to Louisiana and Mississippi and Alabama. And it just felt right to to change the focus of that summer. And, you know, I had the very good fortune of getting a Guggenheim to do that. So it was it was kind of a lot came together. You know, I, I applied for the Guggenheim with that project in mind and it was a huge vote of confidence in every way, obviously, to receive such an esteemed award, but also for that project. And the first year of being on the road in uh, in New England, and actually, it was actually, it's worth mentioning, it was, a, it was a slightly different work process because because it's accessible geographically, and because I had a six month period from because of the grant, I was basically on the road for six months. It wasn't being on the road for thirty days. I would come back to the city as needed, but you know that wasn't that much. And so I started traveling in in June and really traveled all the way through the winter of 2019, leading up right to you know what happened with the pandemic here in the city. And I find the work really exciting. I mean, I'm just sorting it out, and you know you've been hugely helpful as you always are with that and recognizing patterns and knowing what where to explore more. And so in a way, there's that process that I talked about is just beginning where I, I recognize things in the work that resonate with all of the other places I photographed in the United States, and in some cases beyond, and also new things and new ideas. So it's pretty early in that process, by which I mean, it's not 10 years in yet, it's only two. Um, and I do, I am a person who is invested in the long game. Let me ask you, just bouncing off of the idea of the long game, and this is something I wanted to talk about, but I'm going to inject it here. You have been sort of a, in some ways it's unusual, in other ways I think it makes perfect sense. You have been the type of artist who I really admire, which is to say, well, I admire you for many reasons, but um, this specifically, 
you have just gone about your business of making your work and not been overly involved or preoccupied with the photography, the fine art photography world around you. I am always really interested in this sort of balancing act where, you know, it's obviously important to receive a certain amount of recognition. And as you said, the Guggenheim was really important, both financially and as a vote of confidence. But for the most part, you haven't really been that invested in going after these types of things, whether they're grants or whether they're other forms of sort of acknowledgement. I mean, you and I have worked very hard together on making sure that your work is of the sort of highest quality. And by that, I mean that, you know, we, we do work very hard on edits where we don't do anything, you don't do anything, and we don't do anything together in haste. So, you know, you're putting in this just tremendous amount of work. You couldn't be more committed to this craft. But yet at the same time, there's always sort of a remove from the fine art photography world around you. You have historically not been that involved in, you know, whether it's going to a million openings or networking with this group or networking with that group or, you know, paying attention to whatever the latest goings on are. So, you know, how do you put that all together? Yeah, I mean... Well, it's a it's a big it's a big question, or it's a big statement to unpack. But yes, I, I guess I would agree that I've done everything that I can to not be preoccupied by things that I don't have any control over. And you could say, oh, well, you do you know you do have control over your relationship to the rat race if you engage in it. You have some control and. I mean, I do think that there is there's a, there's a rat race. Let's just let's call it what it is. And there's a rat race in the financial world, in the retail world, in the design world, in the architectural world. Why wouldn't there be a rat race in the contemporary photography world? And I guess I just recognized that I needed to find some way. And look, let's let's be honest. This is all with retrospective knowledge. I think at the mm-hmm. time I was just so caught up in just being just loving the process of making photographs that I could make myself of developing the film that I could develop myself of making the prints that I could make myself and then looking at them. Nobody had to be involved in that process. And it was incredibly empowering. And I I guess I just everything else that I've done has been informed by that. And I had, as I mentioned, the great good fortune of, of working with Leslie Katz, who you know, at some point said to me when he made the director of the Aikens Press Foundation, he said, look, if it ever occurs to me that, you know, working at the Aikens Press Foundation is taking away from your ability to be an artist, I'll fire you. And, you know, I, of course, I knew that he was in some ways serious, in some ways joking, but that that really has set the tone for me in terms of how I have worked with everything that I do. I, I am my, you know, I run the Aikens Press Foundation. I, I, I do have the privilege to take a month off. And I do have the privilege to take one day off a week to teach. And so, you know, first of all, let's just say that the circumstances have been incredibly uh, generous. And I'm, I've really have had 
a lot of gifts uh, in terms of what circumstances have provided me. And I think that being able to engage in that, right? So let's remember, I'm publishing one or two books a year through the Aikens Press Foundation. I'm publishing books by artists like Mary Frank and Stephen Shore and Lee Friedlander and historical projects based on, you know, everything from Lincoln Kirstein to Walt Whitman. And I mean, that's all pretty exciting stuff, right? And and I also, teaching is very satisfying and being involved with the, all this volunteer work that I do for these foundations. So there's lots of places that I can get recognition for the work I do, satisfaction for uh, projects that find an audience right away. And I, I guess I've just always been able to protect my work as an artist because of all of that. You know, I remember at some point, and this is sort of maybe out of school, maybe not, I don't know, maybe some people will be interested in it. But I remember realizing that curators really didn't want to talk to me as a photographer. You know, I did what a lot of young photographers were doing back in the 80s and the 90s. I dropped my work off at every museum for every portfolio review that I could legitimately have new work for. And I always got the form letter back, you know, until I didn't. But what what's interesting is that many of the same curators and archivists and uh, librarians and gallerists and, you know, picture researchers... Many of the same people who functioned as gatekeepers in that hierarchy or that infrastructure or the rat race or how, however you want to uh, characterize <laughs> it, those, those same people were the people that I, that I found myself, not suddenly, but like increasingly engaging with as peers from my publishing point of view. <clears throat> okay, so I'm the editor publisher, the publisher of the Aikens Press Foundation, and we're, we are talking about a new project that involves so-and-so. And I need access to archives or to images, or there's an exhibition taking place at a museum. And the book that I've just published is going to be the equivalent of an an exhibition catalog. And so I I developed these relationships with these curators and editors and other people as a peer, as a editor, publisher, curator myself. And I still remember once because for a long time, I didn't have my own mailing list or actually Aikens Press didn't have its own mailing list. It was my mailing list. And that got all blurry at a certain point. And, and I remember I had an exhibition. It, I think it might have been one of the first shows that I that I had with you before you had your space down on Leonard Street. So, so yeah. yeah, so it was a you know private exhibition. And I remember getting a, a call from a curator. It says, you know, it was on the subject that we were dealing with professionally. And then she said, um, I just got this announcement in the mail. Are, are you a photographer too? And I remember like some part, some part of me was thinking victory. <laughs> you know, it's like that, like I, I, in a way, didn't really want to even be known as a photographer, not because there was any shame associated with it, but because it became such a burden to have to talk to people about the work I was doing, what I was making photographs of, what I intended to do with it, when I was going to have an exhibition, when I was going to have a book come out. And so I just I just reconfigured my relationship, or I didn't reconfigure it. I built my relationship with the medium on deriving satisfaction from the process of my engagement with it, which is not to say, I'm not going to bullshit anybody, it would be too embarrassing to say this out loud, that I don't appreciate accolade, that I don't like it when I get a good review, that I don't appreciate a, a major grant. I do. And in some ways, I strive for them. But it's not what my work is dependent on in order for me to get up and go and do it. 
And so I guess, I don't know if that answers your question. It's a complicated no, question. No, it does. But... I, well, it is a complicated question. I mean, I see, I, I think that there's a lot in there. I mean, I think on one hand, you know, just to be sort of analytical about it and get into your brain, I mean, I, I, I also think there's something just sort of convenient about that. Like you didn't have to, you could sort of shelf the possibility of being rejected mm-hmm. by building a different type of relationship. And I just wonder if that I feel like as your dealer and also your close friend that I feel like some of that's starting to change. I've mm-hmm. noticed that over the past couple of years. And, you know, I'm just you know, wonder if, if you're aware of that as well. But I, I do feel like maybe when you were younger, it was sort of convenient to just build your relationships with these people in a way that was more self-protective. And it, it seems like it worked really well. But I, I you know, I, I do feel like I've noticed a little bit of, you know, you sort of coming back into the community as an artist. And, and I mean, I don't know. I, is that right? Or Well, I don't know. Maybe you have a better perspective on it than I do. I mean, I would never say that I felt like uh, I wasn't part of the community. I think I just am part of a community in a different way. And so maybe, maybe I don't know, maybe that there's more of a sense that I'm an increasing part of the community as a photographer, primarily, rather than a publisher or an editor or a teacher, whatever the case may be. That's possible. But to, to your previous point about I don't remember the word that you used, but the the convenience of maybe that was the word you used, the convenience of the relationships that I built. I mean, look, I, I have nothing to hide. And you know that one of my great faults is saying things as they are and not being very calculating about it. Look, I mean, there's, there's a lot of convenience associated with your best friend being your dealer. Right. There's a lot of convenience associated with all of the books that you publish of your own photographs being published by the company that you invented. Right. Purple Martin Press. So I don't have to. And and not not that I haven't. Of course, I have been a part of looking, you know, putting my work in front of editors or putting my work in front of curators. But, you know, that's not a very satisfying experience. And it's not just because I haven't done it enough. It's just not a very satisfying experience, except when it's satisfying, which is you know, one in a million times. And so, you know, it was important to me to have some representation. I like the idea of selling my photographs, you know, and our relationship, our professional relationship was born out of that. But like here, I have this amazing friend who looks at photographs and is more articulate about them than anybody I know, who says that she's interested in representing my work. I mean, I guess that's convenience, but you could also say (laughs) that that's because I've got good taste in friends. And that things worked out well for both of us. You had an, an ambition to represent photography, which you'd always loved. And that, you know, I, I felt like I needed a little bit more representation in the, in the conventional gallery world and community. And that was an extremely lucrative and fun experience for us. And similarly, you know, I had this book of photographs that I wanted to publish of the first 20 years of my travels. Look, I'm not naive. I, I run a publishing company. I sit on all these different boards. I knew what the, cur- what the current discourse was around photography. And my work was not going to fit into that. Yeah, so, so I, that's where I was going to, that's where I was going. Right. So, I mean, so in a way, it's sort of like, 
Well, you know, if if your work doesn't fit into the current flavor of the month or of the year or of the decade, as the case may be, you know, and and you stop doing your work, then you probably weren't meant to be an artist or at least not a photographer. Yes. And and I've I just feel really strongly about that. And you know, I I I try not to proselytize that. I mean, I, I try to to share like an encouraging, positive way of getting to that point with my students when they're interested in hearing it. But uh, I definitely am not somebody who is going to say, well, you know, if you don't do it this way, you're not an artist. Or if you do, you know, if you do it differently than I did it, then it doesn't count. But for me, like, you know, I, it was important to have a book. It was important to have a show. And I knew it wasn't going to happen by going and knocking on uh, the door of a particular gallery or a particular publisher. And so I just did it. And I had the great fortune of having somebody like you involved in the beginning, not somebody like you. I had the great good fortune of having you involved in the beginning. And look, you know, I've been running a publishing company for almost 20 years. I knew the best people in the industry, designers, um, printers, people who understood paper and how to make separations that would work on a particular paper. I had access to distribution. Like, Why would I torture myself by going to you know, the door of somebody who really just didn't even want to look at what I had to do. But I want to say that I think you're a really great example of, you know, keeping your head down, doing the work that you believed in most and and believing that, you know, look, I, I it's hard to finish that sentence with good things will come because, A, as you said, good things have always come. Um, and B, you know, it's like, you don't want to say in one breath that you you care about the sort of whims of the art world because, you know, in the other breath, we can easily talk about how silly that is and, and why that's ridiculous. But I will say that there is something to be said for being patient and knowing that, you know, if you make good work, it will rise to the top. Again, it's and then be acknowledged which I think is certainly happening with you. And again, it is a very awkward place because we're saying rise to the top. Well, rise to the top of what? Of a system that we've already said is ridiculous and we don't respect. So, well, but, well I, know. I think there's another. But let, let, well, yeah. let me just finish that because yeah. as a dealer, I don't want to just leave that hanging where I'm insulting my entire industry. But obviously, there's there are different layers to the art world as there are with many other things. I mean, we can say that politicians are awful and politics and the game of politics is disgusting, as we all well know. But of course, there are people who are in the truest sense representatives of the people. And whether they're in local government, state government, federal government, who actually work really hard and do great things. And in that vein, the art world is multi-layered as well, and some of it is quite capricious and ridiculous, and some of it is quite wonderful and serious and meaningful and beautiful and important. And so I do think these are very I'm, – I'm sorry I'm lecturing, but I do think that these – you know, it is really tough to navigate. And when you're making work, when you sort of get out of the gate making work as you did that at the time was not really flavor of the month – you know, you might have to wait a while in order to sort of arrive at a place where the good part of the ecosystem is aware of what you're doing and does things like, you know, give you a big Guggenheim grant. Anyway, I'm well, done. Look, every, everything in my life 
that is valuable to me. Everything, every relationship, every job, so to speak, every career aspect, every body of work that I've made photographically, every book that I've published of work by somebody other than myself, all has come through time and process. And look, I mean, that's life, right? It's like, I mean, if you take that analogy, it's like, you know, we live in a culture where people are racing to what they perceive of as the goal, right? Like the goal is to, I don't know, to lose weight, or the goal is to get smart, or the goal more likely than getting smart is to get X degree, or the goal is to have this exhibition at this place. And I mean, I, I think people become so preoccupied with that goal that they, that even if they have the good fortune or or hard work and talent or whatever it is to actually make it to that goal, you know, more often than not, I think our culture at least is so obsessed with it that they forget that, that, that it's the process of getting there that really matters. And that's how I feel about my life. And it's certainly how I feel about my work. I mean, look, it's great to publish my book and I'm proud of it, but I'm done with it. You know, and I, and I, it was the process of getting to that part that is enriching and necessary. And, you know, sometimes like, you know, just from a, from the point of view of being in a position to share knowledge that might be useful to other people or to teach, you know, with a heavy disclaimer that, you know, what I do does not and won't work for everybody. I would say that if you can find a way, as I was saying earlier, to derive really fundamental satisfaction from aspects of the process of engaging with the medium of photography that are not dependent on external laudatory, you know, articles or exhibitions or even a pat on the back, that you can genuinely continue to enrich yourself with engagement with the medium that I can, I mean, I pretty much guarantee you that it will come. By it, I mean some kind of respect, some kind of appreciation. I mean, just the number of, of, of people that are out there making pictures and trying to do something, trying to adapt to what others expect them to do, trying to fit with a particular trend in photography, trying to, you know, I don't know, tick the boxes that they learned in grad school to get into a Chelsea gallery, whatever it might be. That's to me all empty stuff for me personally. It may not be for others. And I would just say that until you can find a way to celebrate the process, you're, there's no way that you're going to, that one, that I could have had the patience to, to wait for that to come. But, you know, if you do something steadily for a decade, for two decades, for three decades, that is based on your own ideas and your own, not, not that they're always good or that they're always right, but based on your own ideas and in constant engagement and re-engagement with them and working really, really hard. After 30 years, anybody who's paying any attention is going to be like, this person has been doing this for decades. Maybe it's time to pay a little bit of attention to it. And I just have had faith in that. And it happens to have come true in many ways. But, you know, in the meantime, I think you have to have something we all need to feel like we're a part of something. We all need to feel like we're, we're, we're gaining something, some talent, some insight, some whatever it might be, skill in what we spend our time on and engage in. So I just think that, you know, if you can engage in the process and have patience, I mean, that's like 90% to me of, of any kind of measure of success because it doesn't, you know, if, if you don't get the exhibition or the book that you wanted, like you still have some 
something great to show for it, which is experience with the process and your own relationship to it and confidence around it. And that patience also comes from, I think, you know, a deep sense of satisfaction along the way, right? Like that helps a lot with patience, you know. Yeah, you have to lose yourself in the work. And and feel good about the work you're making. I mean, it makes you a lot more patient if you know you're you're really doing a good job. I mean, it's hard to be patient when, you know, you're, you may not be getting anywhere by your own measure, but I think that you had a lot of confidence along the way that helps one be patient, right? I mean. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, look, it's also, you know, you don't want to function in a vacuum. And, you know, the the nature of the work that I do requires me to not be in a vacuum just by being out in the world and, and photographing and photographing largely people. But I'm also not in the vacuum to the degree that I'm I'm really deeply engaged with the ideas of photography and art and culture and and decency and exchange of ideas and you know in all the other aspects of my life. I mean, let's I really can't underestimate or I can't overemphasize how important having that public responsibility of running a not-for-profit publisher that's been around since the mid-1960s has been. But it also satisfied that an, an aspect of that that and, and it allowed me to shield my own work from it to a certain degree. So that if what you're perceiving now, Sasha, and I, I think this is what you were getting at, is that there's a sense that my work is or that I am emerging somewhat from this kind of protected place, you know, it maybe that's right. And, you know, I don't know that it's that it's designed so much as it is a, you know, a kind of natural part of the process, which was you know, I'd like to be able to do my work with whatever integrity I can without it having to be dependent upon other people's telling me it's good or publishing it or exhibiting it for so long that by, by the time that happens, it's it's sort of incorruptible, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I do. So I do have more thoughts, but why don't we, we wrap up here and we can we can always pick up another time. Thank you so much, Peter, for, you know, your honesty and for sharing everything uh, with with us today. So thank you. Well, thank you. The world needs Sasha Wolf. I, I need Sasha Wolf, and I'm happy to share a little bit with the world. So <laughs> <laughs> it's been a pleasure, as it always is, Sasha. All right. All right, okay. babe. I love you. I'll love talk you to you soon. <laughs> okay. All right. Bye. Bye. So... Let's just uh, be fun now to, we can tell the listeners a little funny story of how I got started and your uh, central role in that, which is that I had been working in the film and television industry and was doing that so that I could make my own short films. I was, unfortunately, uh, if I was born with any gift as a filmmaker, it was in the short form, which is uh, not very lucrative, but that was the way I tended to think as a writer and director. And so I had made a number of short films and was absolutely obsessed with filmmaking, uh, still am obsessed with film in many ways, but I was really burnt out on the industry and I just couldn't take it anymore and I wanted to get out and I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. And I had actually started as a, you know, started making pictures when I was very, very young. My father made television commercials and taught me how to make pictures. And I had a, my own dark room. And um, in fact, your, <laughs> you and your dad helped build. 
And in fact, okay, just we'll take it all the all the way around. The room I'm sitting in right now, recording my now recording studio, was my dark room a long, long time ago. But you know, I had been very involved in in still photography, and so I woke up. I didn't wake up. I was actually lying in bed thinking about it. And about three in the morning, I was like, I think I'm going to be an art dealer. I think I called you the next day and said, okay, I'm going to... sure you weren't asleep in the middle of a nightmare? <laughs> yes. Well, I called you the next day. You and I were, as we've said, extremely close friends. And I said, this is what I'm going to do. I think you thought I was absolutely out of my mind, but I was going back and forth to LA a lot at this point in my life. And I said to you, and I had been involved with helping you edit work at that point for a number of years. So I was incredibly yeah. intimate, had a very intimate relationship to your work. I said, let me let me take some boxes of your work out to LA. I mean, this is just such a, even to me, this is a hilarious origin story. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great story. It's, it's, it, it's, if I dare say, the stuff of movies, Sasha. <laughs> So I had, okay, I mean, everything is so connected. I had some boxes, some clamshell boxes, really beautiful linen-bound boxes made that had my, said Sasha Wolf photographs, which is what I named my first venture. And I still have them. They're right in the room next to me in my office. And Hope Bindery who you introduced me to, yeah. who I used to make them, are actually making boxes right now for the Chris Graves portfolio that we're doing. So everything yeah. everything stays connected. Um, had these boxes made, filled them with your prints, and went out to LA and made many, many trips out to LA over the next number of years before I opened my first public space. And I would have sort of pop-up shows at Friends Spaces in LA and sold. <laughs> it gave me the wrong idea about how easy it was going to be because we sold so much work the first couple of years that I was I was representing you, and I was like, "This is going to be easy." Oh my god! But um, I think it was. <laughs> I think it was. You know, I was dealing with people in LA in the film industry who are extremely comfortable with photography and very connected to photography because they work in a visual medium, and so having those people as early clients was just absolutely tremendous anyway. And that's how I got started. And then I brought on more and more photographers and the rest is a crazy history of ups and downs. But that is, that was the beginning was, was, I was sort of like a traveling, um, you know, vacuum cleaner salesman, except I was, I was selling prints, photographic prints. It was really quite amazing. So yeah, th those were those were the uh, those were the halcyon days. <laughs> they were, and, you know, that was that was so much fun, and it felt so good. It also felt really like unreal. It was definitely. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, what, while you might have been all using my, it to galvanize your your yeah. your you were using it as, as a way to galvanize your life changing decision to become a dealer, I was thinking, when's this going to end? <laughs> you know, I was like. Um, and of course it did, but um, but in the meantime it was a lot of fun, yeah, and I think was. actually in all in all seriousness, of course, one of the reasons that it worked so well. Well, actually, there's two reasons that worked really well. No, there's three reasons. One is there was a ton of work, right? I mean, by the time that you and I started working together, I had 20 years of of 
exhibition prints and projects. And so there was something to work with. And that, that's the, the sort of, you know, the, the, the lowest common denominator. The second part of it was there is this audience of people who were not yet major collectors of photography. So it was like, you know, it was like a clientele that, ha- that had not already bought too much photography. <laughs> yes, <laughs> no, this was literally a, empty walls. Yeah, it was a really bizarre, n- never to be replicated business model, which was we had all this work of yours. It wasn't 20 years because you're making yourself older than me, which you're not. Um, right, right. But, it wasn't quite 20 years. But you had a good 10 years of incredibly strong work. And I had this audience of, you know, youngish, incredibly wealthy people in the film industry who had enormous houses with tons of wall space. And we sold, <laughs> I mean, I sold so much work to all the people I knew, and then I would meet other people, et cetera. But at a certain point, it sort of reached peak saturation. Um, and also, once I opened the gallery, I couldn't be flying back and forth to LA all the time. I mean, things shifted and I had other responsibilities and I, you know, was working with more and more artists. And, you know, once you have, and this is, you know, partly why I closed the gallery too, because there are so many things Mm. I couldn't do anymore. Once you have a public space and you have to have an exhibition every six weeks, you know, you're, it's like having a child. I mean, I just didn't yeah. have the same freedom. Um, but wait, there, there, was a, there was a third aspect of what I wanted to say. I said there were three things that made that so successful. Yeah. One, that there was some work. Two, that there was an audience, i.e. people with money and places to hang pictures on the wall. But yeah. the third, the most important part of it was that, that you were embedded in this community and a trusted voice yeah. for you know, a, a somebody who, who, who was trusted intellectually, you know, with your discretion, because discretion is always part of the equation when you're dealing with Hollywood. But then also that you had this kind of this long history with the medium of photography, which, as you acknowledge, resonates with film industry. Yeah, no, that was really, really fun. Um, and it was a great way to, I mean, in a way, there was so much naivete in thinking that it was always going to be that easy. But in a way, you know, that's the type of blind faith and naivete you need to do something as silly as open an art gallery. Photo Work with Sasha Wolf is produced by me, Michael Chauvin Dalton of Real Photo Show. The executive producer is Sasha Wolf, and our theme music is by J. Walter Hawks. You can hear Photo Work on all your favorite podcast platforms. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify, and be sure to subscribe on any one of those services or wherever you listen to podcasts.